Now, last week, last week I kind of laid out some general uh, just teachings or truths for you when it comes to studying the Word. Quick review, quick review for you. Uh, I talked about the importance of observation. Now, when you get into the text and when you start to read it, you want to ask, who's writing this letter? Who's he writing it to? What's the purpose? What's the content? What are the key words? What are the key phrases? Is there any contrast, any, any comparisons being made? What is God saying to me in this book right here? And then we talked about after you move from this observation uh, realm, you want to get into interpretation. And that's where you're going to spend time saying, what does this exact word mean? What does this phrase mean? Why did God use this phrase and not another phrase here? Why did he use the word koinonia when it came to fellowship? Why did he use the word agape or not uh, a phileo in this love statement here? And so you ask all those questions and you start to get definition. Make sense? So we want to make sure that we interpret the word properly. Made the observation to you last week that many people will say uh, there's many interpretations of the scripture there's not. There's one. And God is the only one qualified to give us the interpretation of what a text says. Then we talked about the importance of meditation. So after we spend time in observation to interpretation, then we move to, uh, to this realm of meditation, which means I'm going to ponder and contemplate throughout the day. I'm not going to pick the Bible up first thing in the morning, spend 20 minutes just kind of reading through it and ignore it the rest of the day. My purpose of, of study, observation, and interpretation is so that I can start to walk throughout the day in meditation, uh, pondering what God has to say. Psalm 1, Joshua 1, meditate on the word, the law of the Lord, day and night. You'll have success wherever you go. Then we talked about how this should uh, swing open the door to application. How is God, through the working of the Holy Spirit, desiring to apply these truths that I've studied to my life today? I mean, that's the whole purpose of studying it, right? The whole purpose of uh, diving into the Word is so that we can move to the realm of application. So, God, how does this fit in my marriage? How does this fit in my parenting? How does this fit when I'm at work? How does this fit as I deal with my coworkers or whatever? And then, then you've got to look at how does this change me? How does this lead to transformation? Now, our purpose of proclamation at the Cross Loganville is not for the purpose of information or education. All of our proclamation is for the purpose of transformation. We believe God wants to transform every life that walks through these doors. So whether you're lost we believe God wants to transform you so that you become born again and saved. Well, if you're a brand new Christian, we believe God is wanting to mature you and grow you up so that you're not just drinking the milk of the word. You can move toward the meat. If, if you've been walking with the Lord for about a year or two years, we believe he wants you actively involved in giving and in serving and in sharing and investing in kingdom work. We believe that every person that walks in this room should be experiencing transformation through the work of the Holy Spirit. I've been walking with Jesus 30 years, 11,000 days, and as I look at my journey, God is still transforming me day after day after day. Now, again, we made the observation that this word right here is alive and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. We've also made the observation that all Scripture is inspired by God, and it is profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, and training in righteousness. We believe, we believe that this Word is alive. We, we believe this Word doesn't have an expiration date to it. 
We believe this word right here is true for all people of all places of all times, that it does not expire. So whether you lived 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago or whether you live 100 years from now, thus saith the Lord never becomes outdated. Come on. So that's what we believe. We believe that this word is shallow enough that the babiest of all Christians will never drown, but we believe that it's deep enough that the greatest theologian will never touch bottom. How powerful is that? So no matter where you're at, no matter where you're at in the journey, that book right there, that living book, the Word of God, desires to be used by God to transform you. Now today, today, uh, grab a pen, grab your journal, grab your notebook, open up your iPad, whatever your device, uh, ever how you want to take notes, this is going to be very crucial. I want to look at the two major, major kind of teachings, if you will, in the Scripture. And the two major ones are either narratives or discourses. Narratives or discourses. Now, a narrative is going to be more story-based. And when you start to study a narrative, a story, you will oftentimes find one central truth being emphasized. Occasionally, there'll be a couple of other truths hanging with it, but a story really has the emphasis of one major central truth. When you get into a discourse, you're looking at more of an inductive study where there's going to be multiple teachings and truths building on each other. Makes sense. Everybody nod with me if you, if you understand what I'm saying. So I want to first look at today a narrative, which is a story. And if you've got your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. Now, Matthew 18 is an incredible text. Matthew 18 is one of those passages that has been abused and misused greatly. But I want to break down this story with you to show you the story and how you study a narrative, okay? So Matthew 18, verse 1 says this, the disciples came to Jesus and posed the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, now, the reason it's important when you study is to look and say, has there been a question posed to Jesus that he is going to answer? Now, one of the most abused texts, Matthew 18 here, 15 on, but one, another great abused text that we find is Matthew 22, where uh, the, the Pharisees come to Jesus, and the Pharisees pose the question, as we have it in verse 34, where they said, according to the law of Moses, what is the greatest command? And he said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Upon uh, these two commands hang everything that the law and the prophets taught. And so Jesus gives them an answer. People have quoted that saying, the great command, if you're living according to the law of Moses. Then you look at verse 41 in Matthew 22, and Jesus poses the question where he says, regarding the Christ, whose son is he? They said he's David. Then he says, then why did David call him Lord? And so the real question was the question that Jesus ask, not the one that Jesus was answering according to the law of Moses. You've got to, you've got to look at it and go, who asked the question and how is his response? Here, the disciples have asked him a question. Hey, hey, who is the greatest in the kingdom? 
Now, these cats might have been jockeying for position, right? Peter, James, John, and all these guys. Uh, 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 Which one of us is the greatest? Now, if you had to define that in your own words, if you were going to define greatness, where would you start? I'm not sure we would start where Jesus went. Listen to what he says. Verses 2 through 4. Jesus called a small child over to him and put the child among them. He said, I assure you, unless you turn from your sins and become as a little child or as little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Anyone who becomes as humble as this little child, listen how Jesus answers it, is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What is he saying? Now, now ponder that text. Anyone, sit down, anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He mentions two obvious things in this text. He says, unless you turn from your sin. So Jesus says two things. It's in your notes right here. He says, repentance and humility are great. You see this? Now, this is all hanging on the one question. Who is greatest? If you were going to define greatness to people in your world, your kids or, or your coworkers, would you start by saying, hey, 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 let me tell you how, what, what great is. Repentance and humility. That, that's where Jesus starts. So as we coach and as we lead and as we shepherd, what's the greatest thing you can do? Repent. Turn from your sins. If you don't turn from your sin, the scripture says you're going to perish. You're going to miss it. Then he says humility. And C.S. Lewis said humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. And, And so humility is having this proper view of God and this proper view of yourself. When your perspective of God is accurate, it will bring you into proper perspective of how you're to be living. So, so. We're studying a narrative. What's great? Repentance and humility. That's great. I applaud that. Then he goes on to say, verses 7 through 9. You you can read 5, 6. It it all ties together right here where he says in 7, how terrible it will be for anyone who causes others to sin. Temptation to do wrong is inevitable. This is all story. But how terrible it will be for the person who does the tempting. So if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better to enter heaven crippled or lame than to be thrown into the unquenchable fire with both your hands and feet. If your eyes causes you to sin, gouge it out. Throw it away. It's better to enter heaven half blind than to have two eyes and thrown in hell. Now, remember, this is a story. And if you take this as a discourse and you take it literal, as I said last week, I would be up here preaching like a pirate. I would not have hands. I would be gouged out. I would be like, I can't see y'all. Y'all can't see me because we took the text literal. This is all hinging on the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom? So what does he say? He says, not causing others to sin is great. Really? That, that, that's all he's emphasizing here. So Jesus says, hey, hey y- y'all want to be great? Repent and live humble. Y'all want to be great? 
Don't cause any of my little ones to sin and stumble. It would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and cast into the sea. Not causing other people to stray from the Lord, he says, is great. You know why this is so important, though? When you go back and study that Matthew is writing this, Matthew is writing to the Jews, showing that Jesus really is the king of the Jews. What were a lot of the Pharisees doing? Causing people to stumble. These little ones that wanted to come to Jesus and receive him as Messiah, they were burdening, uh, they, they had burdened them down with a law. And not only the Ten Commands, but they had taken about another 600 commands and said, if you're going to honor God, you've got to do all this. And he goes, stop the nonsense. Stop it. So what's great? I can look at you today and say, let me tell you what's great. Living a life that's holy, that honors God with repentance and humility allows you to stay in a place where you don't cause others to walk into temptation or to fall into temptation. Is that not crazy? This is all part of this narrative story where he's saying, y'all want to know what's great? That's great. Listen to the third thing. He says, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Verses 12 through 14. If a shepherd has a hundred sheep, one of them kind of goes, wanders away and goes missing, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 and go out into the hills to search for the one? Listen to what he says. Listen to what he says. Hey, you know what's great? Uh, Repentance and humility. You know what's great? Not causing others to sin. You know what's great? You know what's great? Pursuing the lost is great. Going after people that you know have shipwrecked it going after people that you know are jacked up. It's all a part of of, of, of verse 1. What's great? Pursuing people that are lost, extending the kindness and grace of the gospel to those family members that are hell-bent today, the ones who are strung out on alcohol and drugs and all this stuff, and you look at going, there's no hope. He goes, no, there's hope. When you pursue the lost... I believe the heart of heaven applauds saying, you're doing what's great. You didn't write them off. You didn't give up on them. That's great. Listen to what he goes on to say. If another believer sins, go to them privately and point out their fault. When another believer sins, pick up the phone and call about 14 of your friends and bash them. No, 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 no. Listen, listen. When a person sins against you, Go one-to-one. Eliminate triangulating. When person A has been hurt by person B, person A doesn't go to C, D, E, and F. This is all great. This is great. When you go to that person one-on-one, if he listens and confesses, you've won that person back. You've won that person back. That's great. But if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back so that everything may be confirmed. This is something we have learned over the years is so important. I I want another person so that everything is documented. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If the person won't repent, treat that person as a pagan or as a corrupt tax collector. Whatever you prohibit here on earth is going to be prohibited in heaven. Whatever you allow on earth is going to be allowed in heaven. I tell you, if two... Of you agree down here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it. Listen, listen, listen. For where two or three gather together because they are in my name, I am there in the midst. 
Listen, this is one of the most butchered and abused texts. Hey, Father, we're so thankful to be here today where two or more are gathered in your name. Really? That text is all about reconciliation and restoration. Where people use the erroneous logic where two or more are gathered, there he is, then why would you ever have quiet time and one-on-one time with the Lord? If it takes two or more for him to show up, you're up the creek. That whole passage and the whole context is when you are doing church discipline, seeking to reconcile and restore with the heart of heaven, meaning you are desiring to see repentance. I'm in the middle of that. That's great. So, so everybody jamming with me? So reconciliation and restoration of relationship is great. Listen, don't miss it. Don't miss it. Exercising church discipline after you have gone to a person and they don't repent, when you've taken another with you and they don't repent. And we had this lady about three or four months ago that we had gone through Matthew 18 and Galatians 6 and all this. And we sat down, she wouldn't repent. We take two, she don't repent. And we looked at her and said, you're taking a sabbatical from here. Until there's repentance and until there's a heart change with you, you are hijacking every relationship and group you walk in. You don't have permission to do that. Why? Why? Because he says, this is great. Not putting up with a bunch of junk is great. But do it, do it, do it with a heart that seeks to restore and reconcile them back to the Lord. I applaud that. Does this make sense? So you're walking in repentance, knowing that you too can can shipwreck. You're walking with humility. It's not about you. It's about him. And so you're walking this stuff out of pursuing the lost and desiring to see reconciliation. He goes, that's great. Now listen to this one. Verses 21 and 22, Peter asked him, Lord, how often should I forgive someone? Anybody ever played that one? How often should I forgive my mom? How often should I forgive my sister? How often should I forgive my coworker? Peter goes, Seven times? Under the rabbinical system, the priests were only required to forgive three times. So don't throw Peter under the bus. We're not doing much better. And Jesus says, Peter, 70 times seven. What was the teaching? Authentic forgiveness and refusing to to keep score. That's great. I'm telling you, if you were to ask 100% of the people here this morning before they walked in, write down characteristics and the essentials of greatness. I guarantee you we wouldn't have laid that list out. Now, these are the guys that Jesus is empowering 
that's going to take the gospel into the known world of that time. Now, these are 19, 20, 21-year-old boys, young men, and they are about to be filled and clothed with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and these are the guys that God is going to use to take the gospel into the world. Why was this important, Peter? Look, 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 look at me. Be humble and live in repentance. P -p -p Peter, listen to me. Don't cause other people to struggle in sin. Don't allow your mouth and your energy to get in the way. I'm telling you, younger, when you're 20, 25, and 30, you can say, man, you love Jesus all you want to, but there's a lot of times we function in energy. And I've got the energy to go do it. The older you get, you become a little more wise. Hey, Peter, pursuing that which is lost is great. Reconciling and restoring, that's great. Uh, authentic forgiveness and not keeping score, man, that's great. Come on. Now, that is a narrative. And so I wasn't even really getting into just the, the teaching of it, but I wanted you to see it as you study a story. Makes sense. Everything here is hinging on that one question. So it's one truth. Everything in that truth uh, dialogue is great, great, great in the kingdom of heaven. Here's what God applauds. Now, I want you to look at a discourse. 1 Thessalonians 2. Now, I'm taking two buzzwords that are used often in our culture. I'm taking the word great, and I'm taking the word success. Now, listen to this one here. 1 Thessalonians 2. It's phenomenal. Discourse, which means it's going to be more of an inductive style teaching. Starting in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul writes, You know yourselves that our visit to you was not a failure. Shh, shh. Let, me, let me tell you what to do. Our visit to you was not a failure. I'm going to go ahead and circle that word failure. It's a strong word in this text. Why? We had suffered and we had been mistreated in Philippi. But as you know, we still had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel in the midst of a lot of opposition. For our appeal does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. We never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor did we come with this pretext of greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from men either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, just as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children and having such a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our very own lives because you had become dear to us. Now, this is a discourse. This is an inductive study. This right here, did you see the constant contrast of wording that's going on in this text? You feel me on this one? Now, here's what, here's what I would say. When, when you read this one right here, or you read others, you're going to look for key words, key phrases, and you're going to go, what is the theme? The theme here in this text is, what is success and what is failure in ministry? Did you see it? What is success and what is failure? So he starts by saying, you know, we had been violently been mistreated over in Philippi. Go back and read the book of Acts and you'll see all these missionary journeys that Paul took are buried in the book of Acts. What happened to you? 
Well, we know he was beaten. He was thrown in jail. Even when he writes the book of Philippians, he's writing from a damp dungeon in a Roman jail cell, sewage infested, rats all over the place. It was a nasty condition that Paul would write from. And he goes, you know how bad we were treated? Remember when the Philippian jailer gets saved and, and him and, him and uh, Silas are thrown in prison? Remember that? I mean, these cats are in prison worshiping God, man, just going off, having this great celebration. Why were they in prison? DUIs or, or rape? Or, they were in prison for preaching the gospel. He goes, you know how bad we got treated over there? Yeah. Then he says this, our visit to you is not a failure. So here's what I want to contrast, and I want you to see it, the inductive piece. Failure happens if we have an attitude of. Don't miss this. What's in it for me? That's what he lays out. He says, our appeal does not spring from error, impurity, or deception. The word error means this. Our, our, our communication to you and proclamation to you, we did not wander away from the truth of God. Now, you can turn on TV and you can listen to a lot of these so-called televangelists and teachers today, and you'll listen to some of it going, what in the world is he talking about? He has wandered away from the truth. Paul is saying, hey, 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 when we came to you, we didn't wander away from the truth. It was not with impurity, meaning we, we didn't sprinkle dirt in the midst of all this cleanliness and holiness and righteousness of God. It was not with deception. There was nothing inside of us that had any desire to mislead you away from the heart of the Father. That would have been a failure. Don't miss it. That would have been a failure. He goes on to say in verse 4, our purpose is not to please people. That would have been a failure. If, if, if we would have been about all of the applause that we could get from you and the approval and the attention that we could get from you, and if we were using you to get our needs met, that would have been a failure. Shepherds are to lead their sheep, not to use their sheep to get their needs met. And Paul is laying it out right here. He goes, uh, uh, you know that would have been a failure. So we didn't have this what's in it for me. He goes on to say, uh, it wasn't about what can I gain from it. Look at verse 5. We never came with words of flattery. That would have been a failure. Flattery is when I'll say something to your face to butter you up that I would never say behind your back. Gossip is when I would say something behind your back that I would never say to your face. And he uses this right here saying, we didn't flatter you. Oh, aren't you the best? Why? Look at how good you look today. Why? I mean, come on. I don't know about you in my BC days. I mean, I tried to work it a little bit going out. Oh, look at you. You're looking so sweet today, mama. And all this crazy stuff, it was all flattery. Come on. Y'all didn't ever play that game, I'm sure. I know, Chad. I know you never played that game, Chad, Daniel. But when you use flattery, it's all about how you can benefit and what you can get from it. And Paul says, we didn't come to you to flatter you. We didn't come trying to butter you up. We, we, we didn't come just so that you would dig us and, and you would support us. So listen to what he goes on to say. Nor, verse 5, nor did we come with this pretext of greed, meaning we were not pretending to be your friends to get your money. 
that would have been a failure. You, come on. You digging it? You, you, you see we're in a discourse style teaching here that Paul is laying out saying that would have been a failure. I'm going to get to the success part. He goes on to say it wasn't about how we could gain approval, notoriety, and all this. He said, we didn't seek glory from people. As for praise, we never asked for it from you or anyone else. Here's a fundamental principle that drives me. If you're motivated by praise, you'll be deflated by criticism. It's fundamental principle in my life. If you're ever motivated by praise, you will always be deflated by criticism, which means you're attached to how other people are going to respond to you. Paul says that would have been a failure. If we care, listen, Galatians 1.10 is one of my favorite verses, where Paul writes to the believers in Galatians says, are we seeking the approval of God or the approval of man. If we were seeking man's approval, we could not be a servant of Jesus Christ. He didn't say go take everybody off where they don't like you. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying if you live your life addicted to praise, watch out, you will shipwreck. Now, I've heard it said years ago, if people like you, you get their attention. But if people trust you, you get their action. And there's so many ministries that are built on, I just want you to like me. Well, you may get their attention, but once they start to trust you and they move into action, watch God begin to explode. Now, now, you may like certain things about me or you may not, but, but the thing is, is he consistent? Is the character there? Is he who he claims to be? Do they do life on Sunday one way and Monday through Saturday, a different way. You're going to lose trust equity. You've got to be who God's made you. This is all laid out here. Now, success happens. Don't miss this. That would have all been failure in ministry. If we function that way at the cross or any other church does, that's failure. That's, that's God's definition of failure. Now, listen to success. Success happens when we have an attitude of it's all about Jesus no matter what happens. That's what he says. God gave us the courage to declare to you his good news boldly, even in the midst of opposition. That was successful. When we had our lunch handed to us in Philippi, when we were being incarcerated for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus and preaching the resurrection of the dead, can I tell you something? Even in the midst of that, we still declared the, the gospel of God with boldness. That was a success. What he's saying is, no matter what you're going through and no matter who you're going through it with, Circumstances never make you, they only reveal you. And what was revealed about the apostle was, it's all about Jesus. My declaration didn't change based on my circumstance. Make sense? You got to get this. He goes on to say in verse 4, we speak as messengers who have been approved by God. That's a success. God has constantly shown the anointing on our lives that we were sent by God. One of my favorite phrases, Paul was sent by God. Churches today, well, we're praying about calling this man. You can call all you want to, but if God sends somebody, you can't shut them up. I mean, as you can go back and read John chapter 1 where it says there was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. 
He wasn't called by man. There wasn't some committee formed together to see what we're going to do. He was sent by God. And when God puts a scent on somebody's life, you can't shut them up. You can't silence them. And that's what Paul is saying. Hey, let me tell you what a success was. It was all about Jesus no matter where we were, no matter what we were going through, no matter whether we had much or had little. Remember in Philippians 4 when he makes that statement? I've learned to be content no matter what my circumstances, whether I'm fed or whether I'm hungry, whether I'm clothed or whether I'm, I'm naked. I, I, I've learned to be content that Jesus is enough. That's where people butcher Philippians 4.13, use it as a rabbit's foot. I can do all things. Paul's saying, I'm, I'm satisfied with Jesus. Jesus is enough for me. People have used that Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. No, Christ in you can do all things that he wants to do. Don't put too much emphasis on you. You're just a little vessel. Listen to what he says. Success was... Verse 4, he says, our motives are pure before God. Our purpose is to please God. He examines the motives of our heart. He knows why we do what we do. A lot of people may know what you do, but he knows why you do it. When God has done like this introspection, Psalm 139 kind of thinking, uh, search me, O Lord, inside my heart. Psalm 51, kind of tying it together. When I've allowed the Holy Spirit to turn on the searchlight on my heart, he knows my motives. And we don't know everybody's motives. Paul would say in Philippians 1, some are preaching Christ out of pretense and greed. He goes, praise God, Jesus is being preached. I know my motive. And that's the one thing that God will applaud. He goes, when your motive's right, that's successful. Don't you use them, people, to get your needs met. He goes on to say, authentic compassion and care, that's successful. He says, we were gentle with you. We, we hung in there with you. When, when, when things were going tough for you, and, and we stayed with you. We walked through the sewage with you. We, we, we helped come alongside you and, 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 and carry you at times. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. I told you years ago, right after Foxworthy, uh, Jeff, I'd taken him out only a few times to speak. One of my favorite stories, though. And uh, we got called with the uh, Georgia uh, Youth Evangelism Conference, uh, Southern Baptist. Uh, they were doing a big conference down in Macon, Georgia. And so the guy that was spearheading the Georgia Youth Evangelism Conference called me and said, uh, is there any way you and Jeff could come speak at this conference? We're going to have like eight, 9,000 kids here. Let me pray about it, and I'll talk to Jeff. And we said yes. And so they put out on their literature uh, this one night, Jeff Foxworthy and myself. I'm, uh, nobody knows who I am. But anyway, Jeff Foxworthy is going to be there. Well, I got this phone call from this pastor down in South Georgia. And this pastor calls me and says, I've got a concern. And I'm like, cool. He goes, I've got this concern that they've invited you and Foxworthy to be there. And I've got church members that have some of his old truck stop tapes. Really? Yeah. And so I don't have freedom in my heart to let my youth group and kids go hear somebody like that. I'll never forget. I'm talking to this dude on the phone. And it just so happened on my desk, I looked and I'm like, huh. I had two things sitting on my desk. 
I hadn't really put them there for this purpose, but as soon as this question was posed, I'm like, why be doggone? I, I, I said, sir, I said, let me tell you something. I don't know you and you don't know me. I'm looking at two items sitting on my desk right now. I don't even know why I put them there. One of them is a rock. And I'm reminded of what Jesus said when the woman was caught in adultery. You who are without sin, throw the first stone. I know what God's been doing in this dude's life. I know he did some jacked up stuff way back and some of his language and all that stuff on his truck stop tapes, whatever. But I'm looking at that rock as a reminder, don't throw rocks at that dude. And I said, maybe I had sinus, something was going on. But I looked and I said, I got a roll of toilet paper sitting on my desk. (laughs) And I said, sir, I just want to tell you, it's one thing to point out crap in a person's life. It's another thing to come alongside them and try to help clean them up. So you keep your little youth group wherever you want to keep them. But I'm going to walk with dudes who are becoming clean before the Lord. It might be good for some of us to put a rock and a roll of toilet paper on our desk. Because when a person starts to grow in their relationship with Christ, if you expect them to go from lost is a ball in high weeds to some great theologian overnight, can your expectation put your arm around them and be gentle? Hey, you know God wants you to honor him and return to him financially. We're talking about this. Just be gentle. I'm not going to guilt and shame you in it. But as soon as you start to honor God, I'm getting blasted with texts going, you're not going to believe how God's working. Shh, shh, just be gentle. Hey, you know God wants you to share your faith. Yeah. And that this one girl that was here last week, we did a memorial for her dad who had fallen and broken his neck. And she's like, I don't know if I did this right, but I typed out this prayer and wrote out this prayer and I've never done this with my family and none of my other family goes to church. And I wrote some scripture out and we were sitting there in the room the day before my dad died and I read this prayer and she read it to me. I said, send me a copy of it. And she was in tears. That's the first time I've ever done that. And then I read the scripture. Yes. Yes. Does it mean her language is going to be perfect tomorrow? No. No, 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 no. No, we're in the process. I don't remember the second, third, and fourth time I ever shared my testimony, but I remember the first time. I don't remember the second, third, and fourth time I ever prayed out loud, but I remember the first time. And sometimes when you're walking with people, it's like, come on, you can do it. Well, I don't even feel like I made any sense. But you did it. You told people that you love Jesus and God saved you. Yeah, I said that. Yes, good for you. Now, you can do it a second time. But when you're with people, Paul says, being gentle. Yeah, that's successful. Listen to what he says. We loved you and gave you, verse 8, not only God's gospel, but we gave you our very own lives. Which, listen to this. And Mike and I have talked about this, and, 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 and we find it kind of trippy. But check this thought out. I've been in churches where guys will stand here and preach, stand here and teach, stand here and proclaim. God bless you. And they walk off. And nobody knows them. Nobody sees them. I'm not saying it's wrong. But I'm saying, I think it's impossible to give somebody not only the gospel, 
but not give them your very own life. What's your name? Where are you from? How long y'all been around here? And Paul emphasizes, we hung out with you. We lived with you. We broke bread with you. We did life with you. I mean, my one young couple is sitting here. I mean, she was telling me the other day, Emily, your wife was out there greeting in the lobby and hugged us. and She made me feel so warm. It's one thing to stand and teach and preach, but this is a relational culture at the Cross Loganville. We want people to get involved in small groups and do life on life. Here's what I wrote. Truth plus transparency plus time equals trust. They shared the truth. They were raw, organic, and real. They were transparent. They did it week after week and day after day. I trust them. If you try, if you try to short-circuit that process, it's not going to work. So what Paul is saying is, y'all want to know what success is? Success is being gentle and giving you our very lives. You know who we are. Now, this screams, I want you to know me. I want you to embrace me. I want you to enjoy me. I want you to know really who I am, but it's going to require effort. And people who say, hey, 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 I love Jesus, but I just don't like reading the Bible. You're going to tell me the most sacred thing that God's given us outside of the, his son Jesus and the Holy Spirit is these sacred writings. And we're going to say, I just don't like reading the Bible. I've had people say, well, it just don't make any sense. When I fall in love with the author of the book, that thing comes alive to me. Y'all good? Let's pray. 